Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Mike Clarkson, who's joining me today on the uh, on the podcast. Mike, welcome. Hi, thank you, and uh, and nice to be with you, every all of you. Well, welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots. It's a podcast by the law firm of Ogletree Deacons for employers and those in their legal safety and HR departments who need to better understand OSHA as an agency and the law that governs it. I'm your host, Philip Russell. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of the firm. I have a national practice in which I've handled around 200 fatality cases and hundreds of other types. We have one of the largest workplace safety and health practice groups in the country. We cover all 50 states with extensive experience with FedOSHA and state plans. Mike's part of that group, so happy to have him join me today. But Mike is also the co-chair of our drug testing practice group. That's right. Yeah, my, my steel-toed boots aren't quite as dirty as Phillips, but I am doing more and more safety these days. And drug testing and drugs in the workplace obvi- have an obvious connection to this. So here to, to offer what I'm seeing primarily in the marijuana space, but also if it comes up in other drug space, some benchmarking data, some new technology, et cetera, that really we hope can be helpful. That's going to be our focus today. <laughs> We're going to be talking about marijuana in the workplace as a safety issue. Uh, and maybe not so much about OSHA, maybe more so much about uh, state regulation mm-hmm. and how it varies uh, across the land. So our approach is simple, folks. You've heard me say it before. Uh, it's simple, but maybe not easy. We help clients avoid or minimize OSHA citations and improve safety. This podcast, as a reminder, is about education, not about legal advice for specific circumstances. As an employer, it's important for you to know what you can and can't do, but also what OSHA can and can't do. You can't hope to hold the agency accountable to the law if you don't know something about the law. Mike, you're in our Boston office, but you've got a national practice too. Yeah, I hitched my wagon to this drug testing stuff right as as it really picked up speed. I mean, the 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 pace of change, particularly with cannabis, but the pace of change with cannabis in the workplace, whether it be medical and now increasingly recreational marijuana, state laws, but now increasingly municipal laws, as if as if three dimensional chess wasn't hard enough has really been a challenge, but it's been fun uh, to do it and to try to stay on top of it. We've got 66 members of that practice group. I co-chair it with Tate Phillips. It really keeps us busy and i um, happy to help with your listeners share what we're learning. Well, let's talk about this for a minute. Federal law yeah. still makes marijuana illegal. Yes, yes. So if I had been in law school and been asked a question, I think I would have flunked the test. Yeah, it's a, com- it's a common error, right? So marijuana remains on the Controlled Substances Act as a Schedule One drug, the most restricted drug at that Schedule One level, right? But it is also legal or quasi-legal medically in 40 of the 50 states, right? And increasingly legal or quasi-legal as a recreational drug in more and more states. So while you can say legitimately that's illegal under federal law, if you mess up, you won't get sued under federal law. You'll get sued under state law for di- discriminating against somebody for their lawful use of medical marijuana, for failing to accommodate their use of the medication that affects their disabling condition, right? For testing them in violation of the law, for 
prohibiting their lawful off-duty conduct. So there's there's lots of state laws, and as I said, even municipal laws, that are traps for the unwary. Yes, it remains illegal under federal law. It seems to be that doesn't seem likely to change in the future, but that's not the end of the inquiry. So how many states have passed, and let's just keep it at the state level instead of yeah. going down too far into the municipalities, how many states have passed laws governing medical or recreational marijuana? You got about 40. So medical leads the field, right? Um, medical, of course, is sort of more sympathetic, if you will. You've got 40 medical marijuana states. You probably got a dozen or so uh, recreational marijuana states. That's coming on, though. I mean, the trend line is towards legalization. Let's focus on medical for a minute. Not every medical marijuana state provides job rights for people. Still, uh, it's less than half, but a, but a significant percentage of the medical marijuana states have no job rights at all. It's a, it's a decriminalization statute. So you get a medical marijuana card because of your back pain, your, your uh, you know, mental illness, whatever it may be. You can buy and use marijuana, but that doesn't mean your employer has to allow you to do any of that. Right. But other states have anti-discrimination provisions in them, which say you can't discriminate against a medical marijuana cardholder that those job rights affect employers. Well, maybe we should compare and contrast our two states. I suspect the differences are stark. Right. So my state, my home state of Florida, we have the first kind you mentioned, which is it is a decriminalization statute but it doesn't give employees a private right of action right. and it doesn't require employers to even provide any particular accommodations at all. Well, before we get to Massachusetts though, let me, let me, let me throw a third state. In, right? All right. So Arizona in its medical marijuana statute says thou shalt, I'm paraphrasing, thou shalt not discriminate against cardholders. Okay. All right. So we as lawyers can read that and know an Arizonan with a medical marijuana card has some job rights. Massachusetts, where I'm from, its medical marijuana statute has no such language, none, right? There's no anti-discrimination provision in mass law. So you might read mass law and say, ah, there's no job rights. We're not Arizona. We don't have job rights. However, a creative plaintiff sued under the medical marijuana statute in Massachusetts, as well as our state anti-disability discrimination law. There it's called Chapter 151B. This went all the way to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court held in the Barbudo case, there's no right under the medical marijuana statute, no job rights. Aha, win for the employer. However, you are protected by disability discrimination for your use. So they found exactly the same result through a disability discrimination theory. So an employer could take a survey of all the state laws and say, okay, we know the ones that have the anti-discrimination provisions over here. The rest of them are decriminalization like Florida. Uh, 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 not so fast. You could get ensnared by a disability discrimination theory in exactly the same way. And that's what happened in Mass, Rhode Island, New Jersey. There's many ways to skin that cat and to create job rights. But as Florida, we sit today, as Florida, no, no job Florida, rights. No job rights. No job rights. Very clearly. now. For now, for now, very clearly in the statute says says no job rights, no no accommodation required, no private right. right of action even allowed under the statute, and so that puts us, of course, into you know that gives us a different category from the states you mentioned, right? But as you said, for now, because yeah. you have you have these are changing all the time and shifting right. all the time, and it's it's a real so with this three dimensional chess right with uh, different rules in different states. 
it puts multi-state employers in a very difficult situation. Are you going to have different rules depending on where the location is? Are you going to have your Florida cannabis rule and your Massachusetts cannabis rule? I've had numerous clients say that doesn't seem fair. There should be one rule across the company. And I get that concept. But if you're going to do that, you're going to end up with the most marijuana-friendly rule, right? And your, your EH&S manager, your safety guy or gal is going to say, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. This could cause us accidents, injuries, catastrophe. So, you know, it's really something, as the co-chair of the drug testing group, uh, Tay Phillips, speaks really passionately about this. The first stop is figuring out what do you want to do? And then we can help you, okay, what do you want to do and where are you? And we can help you navigate a path through that. But it really is challenging. And the, the easiest mistake to make is, oh, it's illegal under federal law. I'm done. Next. Not so fast. So let's talk about this having job rights, not having job rights is what we're calling them. I'll give you an illustration under Florida law. So with that, the case, you, I've often heard that referring to the medical marijuana card in Florida is essentially a license to get fired. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that not to be too flip about it, because it's a very important issue on both sides, both in employment and keeping a job, but also having to deal with medical issues. But there's that workplace safety issue that comes into play here. And if someone has a medical marijuana card, yet their job is to run a loader or other heavy equipment on a job site, an employer, it seems, would be reasonably concerned about whether or not there is an impairment that would impact safety. Yeah. So a few things to, to touch on, right? It's as a rule of thumb, they consider the impairing qualities of smoked marijuana to be about a four to six hour thing. That's, that's how long your high tends to last from smoked marijuana. Now, when you say they, who are you talking about? It, it, sort of scientific. Okay. Right? Not government. We don't have Not any government. guidance like no, that. No, and that's government. where I'm going to next, right? There is no impairment test now. You know, we're all familiar with the roadside breathalyzer that a state trooper could give to determine if you're over 0.08 for alcohol. And that is considered the, the impairment test. You know, query whether that's true for, you know, a 300-pound heavy drinking male for a 110-pound teetotaling who had one too many glasses of wine female. Who knows, right? But that's the standard. We've, we've, it's been around so long we just accept it. There is no impairment test now for marijuana. None. None. Right, right. So an employer, you know, and, and people are regularly using both recreationally and medically. And conceivably, well, let's take the most sympathetic case, right? Somebody who has a legitimate medical condition and uses a very small dose of cannabis at night before they go to bed to help them sleep through the night with the pain. The, 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 the time between the, the last dose of THC and starting work is well more than four to six hours. They are arguably not at all impaired the next day. They will test positive on a urine screen or even an oral fluid screen, right? But that's not an impairment test. So you might say... Right, right. And that's the real challenge there for employers is there's there's a test for the presence of, but not a test for the impairment of. Right. The body's ability to retain THC greatly outstrips its ability to retain opiates, amphetamines, and the like. Why? Because opiates and amphetamines are water-soluble. Your body flushes them out very quickly, and you won't test positive for very long, or not nearly as long as THC, which is fat-soluble, sits in your fat cells, and is given back through your urine much more slowly. 
That doesn't mean that marijuana is more impairing than cocaine. No, it doesn't. But it does mean you'll test positive longer for THC than you will for cocaine. It's just a quirk of how our body metabolizes this drug. It's a quirk nonetheless and one you have to pay attention to because a medical user who uses regularly will absolutely test positive, right? Because they have so much of this stuff stored in their fat cells. It doesn't mean they're impaired when you test positive. And there's no correlation between the amount of THC in urine and impairment. Right? You, can't, you might think you could draw a line and say, oh, they're really positive. The cutoff was X and they're... X times 10, they must have been impaired. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's weird. Let, let me ask you a question, getting back to the law for a second. Do any states that make marijuana legal in some capacity, do any states make it okay to be impaired at work? No. You cannot be impaired at work, even under like the Arizona type statute that says you can't discriminate, or the Massachusetts approach that says this is disability discrimination. None allow you to be impaired at work. And I'm glad you asked that because testing is one way that people try to measure impairment. But there's far, and of course, as I've said, there is no marijuana impairment test. But there are other ways, right? You can train people to spot signs of impairment. You can document what you see as slurred words, red eyes, you know, stumbling uh, physical behavior, emotional behavior. There's all sorts of ways to establish impairment. I think untrained managers are very hesitant to do that but there is good training to help your manager spot this and to you know increase the safety in the workplace for sure so if you wanted to at least have one aspect of a policy multi-state policy then an employer ought to consider making it clear that impairment on the job is yes. not allowed and there's two other things that are never allowed you're never allowed to use at work all right okay and you're never allowed interestingly to possess at work all right. Now, if you think, wait a second, right? I'm a diabetic. I can bring my insulin into, into work, right? I have, a, I have a legit medical marijuana card. I should be allowed to bring my medicine to work. I'm not, not going to use it. I'm not going to be impaired, but I get to carry it to work. I bought it at my lunch break. Just the way if I bought my insulin at my lunch break, I could carry it to work. Not marijuana. It's a weird quirk. So if you, you can't use, possess, or be impaired, the first two, use and possess, are pretty straightforward. Impaired, not so much. Let, let's talk about... I think we have to bring this up, technology. Yeah. I mean, where are we on, you know, if you know, but where are we on in the world of trying to get to the point of having a test that employers can use, I guess everybody could use on impairment? Where, yeah. where do we stand? So there are some new technology. There is a new technology that um, is now in the market, but I want to be clear that it's not an impairment test. So this breathalyzer measures the presence of cannabis or THC in breath for three to four hours. After three to four hours, the THC has dissipated to a level below their cutoff, okay? So it has this very short look back period. So if you, if you, if you address all the technologies that are out there, you've got a breathalyzer with the shortest, then you've got oral fluid, which is longer, then you've got urine, which is a longer look back period yet, and then you've got hair, which is the longest. The shorter the look back period, I suppose people might argue or might assume it's an impairment test. It's not, but it is important to know that this exists. And I think if, you know, an employer wanted the maximum protection to know 
hey, we want to we want to say you can't use within three to four hours of reporting to the job site, right? You would have to have a policy that said that, right? And then you would mesh that with the use of this new breathalyzer technology and say, hey, you pop positive and you pop positive on a test that only measures three to four hours and we're going to terminate you for that. You couldn't legitimately claim it's an impairment test, but I think a judge or an arbitrator would be very concerned, particularly a safety sensitive employee, to know that that employee had used within three to four hours of operating the loader or working at heights or running a forklift, anything. One of the big Arizona colleges has now got some um, eye tests that measure impairment. These are still in the academic realm, as I understand it. But they also measure, interestingly, sleep deprivation, which could be impairing too, right? So there are some new things coming online which may answer some of these conundrums. I mean, if, if you compare any of the short look-back period ones with urine, right? Urine is going to measure the presence of THC in your body from, you know, hours after use or days to weeks, right? If you used weeks ago, that doesn't say anything to do with impairment. None. If you're an employer and you've got this challenge of not only this, this I guess I'm trying to think of it, a, a quilted, I can't think of my old grandmother's old quilts. Yeah. This patchwork of laws across the United States. Very difficult to, to have a policy that meets all of them. Is that right? It does. Let, let me throw in what, so I think most of your listeners are in the safety space, right? But when they're meeting with their C-suite of people, they've probably got HR in the room and compliance in the room and maybe the CEO. What the other stakeholders in that room are worried about right? Compliance is saying, oh my, we've got this multi-state patchwork rubric. I don't want to get, we're okay in Florida, right? But I don't want to get sued in Massachusetts. I don't want to get sued in Arizona. Um, They're worried about that. What's HR worried about? Oh my, we can't get enough people on the job. We have this recruitment and retention problem. Ogletree's own surveys show our clients' biggest concern is recruitment and retention. And they don't want any more obstacles to getting people on the job. And sometimes a drug test is seen as an obstacle of getting them in, right? And the safety person saying, hold on, safety first, people. We say this, right? We've got to have a safe workplace. So it's a very complicated dance between these folks. So let's talk, I want to talk about that recruitment and retention. That's something I think I've seen a lot of attention to in the last couple of years. Yep. And particularly in the construction industry, because it's been hard to get and been hard to mm-hmm. keep workers to build roads and bridges and buildings and, and things that we need built. So what I've seen is, is and there's four kind of drug testing, four types. There's the pre-employment, yep. there is random, there's reasonable suspicion, and post-accident. Yep. So those are the four general categories. Anything else? Did I get them all? Yeah, I mean, some people do return to work testing or follow-up testing after people gone to rehab. Those are the big four. Okay. Those are the big four. So, but what I've seen is that some employers have have moved away from testing specifically for marijuana in pre-employment uh, and random testing. You're right. But they keep it for yes. post-accident yes. and reasonable suspicion. Yes. If there is one theme, and you're right to say over the last two years, in the last two years, that has been a trend. And what I say to clients that are thinking about that is, number one, you're in good company, right? Lots of safety-sensitive employers have have gone that direction, whether it's compliance-related, recruitment and retention-related, right, or or, or just the prevalence of use. But I say, if you're going to do that, you should really seriously consider ramping up your reasonable suspicion and post-accident protocol. 
calls, right? Reasonable suspicion is one that's particularly amenable to increased training, documentation, right? Another thing, we, I think we tend as lawyers to think about the thou shalt not side of the, of the equation. It's also important to remember to reach out to your people with EAP. A lot of people are struggling with addiction right now. This goes past marijuana, obviously. But telling people, hey, we've got things to help you get off drugs if you need to. We've got confidential help. And as you're messaging these changes, right, especially if you're scrapping pre-employment and random for cannabis, it's a good time to, to help the people who may need that lifeline to kick the drugs. Uh, fentanyl in particular is very dangerous, not to take us away from marijuana, but a good time to remember, hey, this isn't all carrots and it's, it's not all sticks. We've got some carrots to offer too. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you back on for another episode and talk about narcotics and Narcan. In okay, particular. Yeah. We'll do that another time. But you know, yeah. we have this, this OSHA podcast, we haven't even mentioned OSHA yet. So <laughs> let's, let's just wrap up. we got about three or four minutes here. Uh, OSHA, where does OSHA stand? Uh, you know, I'm not going to speak to state plans. I want to try and keep it more focused on Fed OSHA. But certainly from a Fed OSHA perspective, uh, OSHA doesn't get involved uh, with, with drug testing. It's really interesting. And you would think they would. And I polled the safety practice group twice over the last year or two, asking whether people had seen general duty clause violations for failure to have a drug testing protocol, right? Because workers do crash the forklift when they're drunk or high. They do die in the men's room injecting themselves with drugs. This has happened, right? And you might think that OSHA would come in and say, you have a general duty obligation to have a drug testing protocol to do this and that, yet we're not seeing it. Now that could change, it could change in a hurry, but I'm not seeing it surprisingly. Now that doesn't mean we're not gonna do the right thing, but I'm not seeing those citations, strangely to me. I haven't seen them either. I mean, hundreds of cases, I've yeah. never seen one, but I have had many, many, many cases, scores of them, where drugs were involved in one way or another. Right. You got a post-accident drug test from a fatality or serious injury or, or a serious injury case, and of course the medical records come back and clearly show there was some impairment yeah. and presence of you know, marijuana and others. And but yet OSHA seems to not focus on that. I don't understand it either. Yeah. Well, we probably could come up with some pretty good lawyer reasons why the general duty clause is not an appropriate use uh, for that. But yeah. I think that OSHA might come up with their own argument that maybe it would work. But they just haven't done it. We haven't seen that haven't as seen part it, yeah. of any of OSHA's priorities. So right now it remains drug testing remains a state by state quilted and hodgepodge. Yeah. But let me tell you something I have seen over the last two years, right? So Ogletree has this really professional library and they send me an email every morning. We call it the dinger. The lawyers call it the dinger that has a listing of all the drug testing cases filed in the United States yesterday. Okay. Not just our clients, not just my clients, every case. And I have seen a great increase in the number of you didn't accommodate my medical marijuana use. You discriminated against me because I'm a medical marijuana user, right? You only tested me because of my national origin or my race or my gender, right? So there is a cannabis bar association that is actively training lawyers how to sue our clients for marijuana issues, right? They actually have their own bar. And believe it or not, I'm in it <laughs> because I like to do my oppo research. But these cases are being brought all the time. And our clients are getting ensnared in them. So the compliance aspect, right, like that room with the CEO, the legal HR and safety, the, the legal people are seeing this huge uptick in lawsuits. Two years ago, I was saying, we want to get this right. We want to be compliant, but there aren't a lot of suits. That has changed. Mike, that sounds like a great 
way to end it. What is going on in that C-suite? You know, for our listeners, what is happening there? What are these issues? What are these considerations? A lot of things to consider. Maybe not so much OSHA in terms of legal liability, but that doesn't mean no liability. No, and, and, and really important that safety have a seat at that table, right? It's not just compliance. It's not just staffing because marijuana is impairing, let's face it, right? And we, we got to make sure everybody is, you know, goes home to their, their loved ones at the end of the night, at the end of the shift. And so uh, safety should have a voice there and, and I hope this helped understand that so that they can you know, use that voice. Well, folks, that's another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots. Mike, my friend, thanks for joining. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.